Welcome to the Actually I Can podcast. I'm your host, Sue Blackhurst, and I'm here to unlock your business's most precious asset. Yes, that's you. It's time to smash through self-doubt and find your self-confidence so you can live your life unburdened by the fear of judgment, rejection, or failure. Through candid, real-life stories, I'm going to delve into the exhilarating highs and the challenging lows of navigating the world as a female entrepreneur. So join me on this incredible journey of self-discovery to confront every obstacle with the resounding mantra, actually, I can. Hello and welcome back to episode three, which is titled Not All Superheroes Wear Capes, because today I'm talking about how I dealt with death, delays and drunken disorder. I really hope that you enjoyed this series as you join me on my journey of lessons learned through life and experience. Well, I think it's fair to say that being in a job that you don't enjoy can make you miserable, but it can also make you lazy. And that's because it's so easy to climb back onto this treadmill of life and think, that's it, this is me for now and the rest of my life and, you know, I need to stick at it. I call this the hamster wheel of monotony because whenever I found myself feeling trapped in a mundane environment, I know that if I don't get off, I risk losing all my motivation to ever want to get off. And that's exactly how I left you at the end of the last episode. If you remember, I'm now 21. My parents have gone to Australia for about six weeks and I'm having breakfast reading the morning paper. Now, as I turn the page over, there's this advert. It's not a huge one. It was just this small square at the bottom of the page. But the headline immediately caught my eye. It said, do you want to live and work in the sun? And I thought, hell yeah, of course I do. So the decision was actually made before I'd even read the fine print. But it was an advert for Thompson Holidays to work as a holiday rep. So I called the number to get an application form. Yeah, of course, there's still no emails in those days. And before the week was out, my completed application was being returned back in the post over to Thompson Head Office. Now, I can't actually remember how long it took, but it wasn't long before I got a phone call to go to Leeds for an interview, which looking back, you know, even though I was 21, this was my very first real interview. My mum and dad were still away and I don't remember doing interview skills at school. Maybe we did, but I just don't remember it. So I got myself all dressed up and I drove to Leeds with absolutely no idea of what to expect. I can't remember the guy's name who interviewed me, but I do remember that the man was, you know, this stereotypical businessman in a grey suit sat behind a desk. And I also remember that it all was actually quite, quite formal, to be honest. But it must have gone okay because he said I got through this first stage and next stage, it's a bit like X Factor, isn't it? You got through to the next stage. I was going to be invited to the Thompson head office in London for this full day assessment centre. But before I left, he said, can I just give you a little bit of advice for London? Now, it's at this point I know that if Chris, Melanie, Sarah or Carmel are listening, they're probably going to start laughing out loud because he said to me, they'll probably know where this is going. I think you should cut down on the bangles and big earrings because in London they prefer a simple look. Now, this was back in the 80s and yes, I was an 80s girl through and through. If I wasn't dancing to Wham in my rah-rah skirt, ankle warmers and oversized t-shirt with relaxed blazons across the front, I was probably dressed like Madonna in Desperately Seeking Susan. And that meant black leather jacket and at least a dozen bangles jangling on my wrist. 
But, you know, if my mum and dad had been at home, I'm sure they would have given me this same advice, you know, earlier on. But anyway, I got the message off him. I toned down my look. And a week later, I was on the train going to London. Now, the details that we'd been given actually reminds me a little bit of something out of, you know, the TV Miss World competitions because we were told we had to prepare a talent or a skill. Now, what on earth was I able to do? Because I doubted that my ability to wind a full head perm in under 10 minutes would be impressive to anyone who wasn't in the hairdressing industry. And I could wax legs at lightning speed. But when it came to entertainment, I wasn't really blessed with any skills. It was an early morning start, so what they did, they actually put us up in a hotel the night before. And I remember it being early morning, let's call it nine o'clock, I can't remember exactly, but I arrived at Greater London House, which is the head of Thompson Holidays, or known as GLH. And along with about probably 20 other people on the day, we started this full day assessment centre. Now, if you can picture us all, we sat in this room, round this one big table they sort of put the tables together so it was like this huge boardroom style table and we were all sat around the edge of this table and at the end the presenters or the trainers they told us about the job then we had some group tasks to do some mini interviews to do and then it came to towards the end of the day it was time for us to showcase our talents <laughs> well blinking egg britain's got talent had nothing on this lot we had one girl who, in full costume, did the most incredible impersonation of Peggy from Heidi High. There was a comedian who I remember being very funny, and there were a couple of singers, and we even had this acrobat who could juggle while spinning several hula hoops. But then it came to me on my turn. Well, <laughs> all I had was a card trick that my dad taught me when I was about six which was also a card trick that didn't involve anyone else. There was none of that can you pick a card stuff. So there I am on my own at the end of this big table. So the extent of my talent was laying this set of cards on the table in four separate piles as I'm turning them over, you know, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Then I had to recite this short story and then to pick the cards up again, shuffle them, and then, ta-da, when you lay them back down in four piles, they're now grouped in the same suit. So not only was it the most basic of tricks of laying cards on a table where no one else could see them, it was also quite unimpressive. But I did my spiel, and when I told them the end of the trick, you know, it had worked, ta-da, that's happened, I got this very polite, you know, round of applause, and that ripple where someone starts off and then everybody then joins in. And I remember sitting back down absolutely mortified with embarrassment at doing something that was so underwhelming and it's at that point that I just wanted to go home. It's incredible really isn't it how one small segment of time can change everything because I'd been there with these people all day, we'd made friends, we'd had laughs and I got involved with all the group tasks but I then did something that we all do. I compared myself to everybody else and I placed myself at the bottom of the pile. Sitting back around that table, my stomach is now churning, it's going crazy, because I'd now convinced myself that I'd failed. And the scary thing is that I'd replaced about five hours of good with a maximum of five minutes of bad. In fact, I think it's more than replaced because I'd totally eliminated everything that had gone well that day, and I only focused on the fact that I believed everyone else was so much better than me. 
So imagine my surprise when a handful of us were then told there and then on the day that we'd got the job. And there were people that I thought were brilliant who went home. But I was just mad with myself because why had I judged myself so harshly on something that in reality was totally irrelevant? You see, they were interested in the quality of our skill, the trainers and the assessors in the room. They, of course, had been watching us all day. They were only interested in how we interacted and how we behaved. The skill bit was just another way to see how we communicate. It was irrelevant. You know, I could have stood up and read the back of a baked bean tin for what it was worth. It wasn't the quality of our act. That's not why I was there. It was our attitude, and attitude is everything. It had nothing to do with what we did. It was all about how we did it and how we dealt with it. Well, my mum and dad came home and, of course, we were chatting in the car and it was all full of excitement and they were telling me what they'd been, on, what they'd been doing. And then, of course, they said to me, what I'd been up to. And it was like one of those conversations, bless the heart, that they'd had for me so many times of, well, I've handed him a notice and um, I've got myself a job as a holiday rep. I'm flying to Mallorca next Thursday, whenever it was. Can you take me back to the airport? And I wasn't going off to one of these big fancy resorts with big beautiful hotels and nightlife and mega gorgeous beaches, etc. I was sent to this tiny, and I mean tiny, little village on the east coast called Porto Cristo. Now, bear in mind that this was over 35 years ago and everywhere was so much quieter, so much un, what's the word, developed than what it is today. But Porto Cristo was so tiny, it only had one bar called the Alibi, had about five or six small hotels, what we would class here as small B&Bs, and there were a few small apartment blocks. In fact, you could walk from one end of the resort to the other in about 10 minutes. And there were only two reps in the resort, myself and another girl called Christine, who I shared an apartment with. You'll have heard me in my previous episodes talk about what's meant to be doesn't miss you. Well, this tiny little pocket of Spain turned out to be the best start that I could have ever wished for. Because I gained knowledge and skills that have enabled me to do things in life later on that I would never have done without it. Now, okay, it didn't have the nightlife, but what it did have was a whole village where not one person other than myself and Christine spoke a word of English. So it's the start of the season and you know, people aren't arriving yet, the tourists aren't arriving yet. We always get there a couple of weeks early just to get set up and orientate ourselves around. So the resort is really quiet, and I mean really quiet, and there's nothing else to do. So what I would do is I'd go and sit in one of the small hotels that I was looking at, and it was called the Hotel Drac, which was opposite the Caves of Drac. If anybody actually knows Porto Cristo, I had the Hotel Drac. And I would go and sit um, every day in the bar of the hotel. And it was only a small bar. Again, picture a little local bed and breakfast or somewhere with a bar. One barman behind there. This Spanish guy, can't remember his name, it's bound to be something like Miguel. But anyway, the waiter's behind the bar, he was a mature guy. And I would just sit there and he couldn't speak a word of English, I couldn't speak a word of Spanish. But hour after hour, day after day, I'd sit there and I'd point to a glass, the table, the chair, a knife, a fork, asking, what's that called? What's this called? And as the days and weeks went on, these words became sentences. And then these sentences became conversations. Now... 
I know I made loads of mistakes in my Spanish, loads of mistakes. I was probably like that policeman in Hello, Hello. But what made the overriding difference was the fact that I tried without the fear of failing. And the more I tried, the more I learned. And the more I learned, the more confident I became and the less fear I had of making a fool of myself. And I think there's a great message in there because I only gained my confidence to speak Spanish as a result of having a go. If I'd have been put in this huge resort where the majority of locals spoke English, or maybe the other and more experienced reps spoke Spanish, I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm convinced that I would never have tried to learn. It's a bit like sliding doors, isn't it? Because the same person, that's me, with the same abilities can be placed in two very different environments, resulting in very different outcomes. In one, I learned to speak the language, and pretty quickly too, as I had no fear of judgment and no fear of failure. But if I'd been placed in a different resort or environment, which I'd actually initially wanted, to this day, I would have been convinced that I could never learn another language. So, if you're trying to do something, it's not the skill of the person that determines what we can or can't achieve in life. I believe wholeheartedly that it's the mindset to have a go without worrying what anyone else thinks. People think repping is all about parties and nightlife, and I think there's TV programmes about how they do reps and stuff. It's nothing like that, and it couldn't be further from the truth. I left home about, gosh, one month after my 22nd birthday, and I grew up in the next six months way more than I had in the previous three, if not five years. So the season now starts, and part of our job, I have to admit, the bit we all hated the most was the dreaded airport transfer. This is where, of course, we're dropping everyone at the airport and then waiting for the passengers to come through arrivals. Now, this whole process normally takes anything from, let's say, minimum three to maybe five hours. But that's unless there was this inevitable flight delay. So it's early in the season and the French air traffic control have gone on strike. As we help people check in and then we start directing them to the departure lounge, we know that it's going to be a really long day, if not a really long night. But that is nothing compared to the ordeal that we know the passengers are about to encounter. Now, remember this is before contactless, so it's before mobiles and we're still on pesetas. And like most people going on holiday, they spend everything and save just enough money to get maybe a coffee and a sandwich at the departure lounge. Now, the reality is it's not a tragedy when there's a long flight delay. It's inconvenient, but it's not a tragedy. But the impact is far greater than most people realise because families have only got enough nappies and baby food to get home. People have run out of medication. And just think how hard it is to keep a toddler occupied for eight hours when they're overtired and there were no iPads back in those days. The departure lounge is getting fuller and fuller, meaning people are now having to sit or sleep on the floor. Toilets are getting busy and not getting cleaned. And to top it off, it can be 30 plus degrees and there's no air conditioning. So I think it's fair to say that everyone is getting a little frustrated. Well, only at the most extreme times do we, as reps, go through to departures. And that's generally to hand out vouchers for food and drinks and even nappies and baby food. For me, this is my first time. It's pretty early in the season and yeah, I'm pretty much still a greenie. And as I walk through the departure lounge doors with my happy, bubbly, smiley, repping face on and my bags of goodies, naively expecting a warm welcome, 
Oh my word, how wrong was I? It was like a lamb to the slaughter. Because the moment I stepped in and they saw me in my uniform, I was surrounded by angry faces, all shouting and pointing fingers in my face, demanding a flight home. I stood there in total shock. I'd never in my life experienced anyone shout at me with so much anger. I felt pinned to the wall and had no idea what to say or what to do. I think, looking back, I went into shock. But anyway, what I did is I burst into tears and I ran out. The next day, I went to my lovely team leader, who was called Julie, who listened to my horrendous experience and me relating how mean everybody was and how nasty everybody was. And I have to admit, I think I was expecting her to say, oh, that's terrible and that shouldn't have happened and let's see what we can do and you don't have to do it again. But in fact, she smiled at me and she just said, welcome to the job, get a grip, this is what we're here to do. I suppose in a way, it's a bit like a firefighter going to their team leader and saying, it's really hot in that burning building. Uh, well, yeah, this is what it is. And I learned so much from Julie because not only did she reassure me that I was doing a great job, more importantly, she showed me how to toughen up. The more I felt intimidated, the more I looked intimidated. And that sent signals that I wasn't an easy target. My body language spoke volumes, it shouted scared, and that only made me look weak and unable to cope. And something had to change. And that's when I started to learn how to face challenge rather than run away from it. And you know what? The more I started to look people straight in the eye, and the more I altered my body language, the less people became angry with me. And even if I couldn't find a solution, they began to thank me for all my help. So often it was simply about being heard and being understood and once I changed my approach, well, I could face anything and it didn't take long before I had to test out my new skills. Thompson Holidays promoted something called the Square Deal, which was basically where you pay huge discounted rates but you only find out where you're staying when you land. It's basically a way to fill up these empty rooms. So, here I am. Early morning in resort and I'm off to do my welcome party for the new arrivals that came in overnight. I've got my big jug of sangria already and I'm still perfecting my sales pitch for all these excursions, you know, barbecue night and party night and all these things. When about a dozen strapping blokes walk in and say, we're not staying here. It's a stag party. They've paid about £30 per head, hoping for Benny Dorm and Sticky Vicky. Let's not go there. And what they got was Emmerdale, and they weren't too happy. But as they say, a deal's a deal, and a square deal was you pay peanuts and get what you're given. Sometimes you hit lucky, well, other times you don't. So they were demanding to be moved, and I made a call to the local office. But it was no way. Not a chance. A square deal's a square deal. That's what they've got. That's where they stay. So I had to then break it to these guys that, sorry guys, you're here for the week. Well, it must have been about 3am when I was woken up to somebody banging on my apartment door. So getting up, I opened the door and it was one of the night porters telling me that there was a problem in the apartment block where these guys were saying that was next to his hotel. Of course, remember, there's no phones in those days, so the only way to communicate was to walk round and bang on the door. So, three o'clock in the morning, I'm putting my uniform on. 
and I go over to see these men and they were kicking off big time. The alcohol was flowing, the music was playing so loud and they were shouting and simply disturbing everybody else. So here I was, okay, I'm this 22 year old girl, newly 22, first time away from home in a nice home where parents were calm and didn't shout and I'm standing in front of about, you know, a dozen blokes who were drunk and angry as hell but guess what? I was wearing my Thompson uniform and that, in this job, was power. When you put the uniform on, it's weird how we almost become invincible. We could deal with things that we'd never be able to deal with in our jeans and t-shirts. You know, if we were walking down the road in our civvies, if there were a dozen men kicking off, we'd turn around and walk the other way. But put that uniform on and we gain the ability to deal with anything. So there I am. 3am and all of a sudden I step up my game because I've learnt it from my airport duties and my flight delays and it's like head teacher walking into the classroom of these unruly kids. I marched over, demanded that they talk rationally or the police will be called. The music went off, the shouting stopped and I promised to meet them first thing in the morning, which actually this time now wasn't very far away. Well, next morning I called the local office who gave me the same line that nothing can be done. But I wasn't going to take no for an answer. It may have been the square deal, but surely somebody could see that these 12 lads were in the totally wrong place. And surely they had some empty rooms somewhere more fitting. And why would we want to ruin everybody else's holiday? Well, I didn't give up. And within the hour, these guys were booking taxis to take them to the south of the island, where they should have been. So I went to wave them off. And as I did, each one of them came up to me and gave me a big hug and said thank you. You know what? They were really decent guys. They were just in the wrong place. And after all, I was the one wearing the uniform. They needed my help. And I knew that I was their only hope of making it happen. And when we used to wear this uniform, you know, we couldn't walk anywhere without being stopped or asked for directions or where to cash the traveller's checks, remember those, or catch the bus. We were young, but once in our uniform, it's like we could face anything. The hardest thing for me to face was my first experience of death. A young couple came on their honeymoon. Now they were in their early 20s. And there's a resort just south of Porto Cristo called Calas de Mallorca, which has a small bay and it's also known to be very rocky. It's early days into their honeymoon and they've gone there for the day on the beach. And there must have been this strong undercurrent as they were not only unable to get back to the shore, they were swept into the rocks and tragically neither of them survived. I wasn't there and I didn't know them well, but I'd met them and I talked to them and I knew them and it really knocked me back. The senior team, of course, in the offices, they dealt with everything, but I was asked to pack up all their belongings to be returned back home. I remember packing a photograph taken simply the night before of the barbecue night and they were sat together looking so happy. And I just remember thinking to myself, this is probably the last photograph ever taken of them together and how on earth are their families ever going to deal with this? And somehow, not getting the hotel of your choice seemed really unimportant. It was only three weeks later when I faced a similar situation again. It was my day off and I'd gone to a local hotel to sunbathe by the pool. I was on my own and having a well-earned rest. Lying on my sun lounger, I suddenly heard all this commotion and someone dived into the pool and lifted out this small child. And it was right next to where I was. And they laid this small boy, who can't be more than about four or five, at the side of the pool near my sun lounger. 
I didn't recognise the boy, but I recognised his father. He was the village doctor and he was going frantic to get to him. But he was being pushed aside, really quite harshly pushed to one side by this very good friend who also happened to be a doctor. As the father watched on in absolute horror, holding on to his wife, the mother of this little boy, and they were holding each other so tightly, his friend began working on this child and it seemed to go on forever, compressions, breaths, compressions, breaths on this tiny little frame. I couldn't move, I didn't want to watch, but I just couldn't look away. I'm not sure how long it took, it felt like forever, but it could have been minutes when suddenly this little boy spluttered and it's just like you see on the movies, water came pouring out of his mouth. He was alive and I burst into tears. My first season lasted about seven months. I arrived a naive 22 year old and I returned home knowing that I could now face anything and anyone. In no more than four weeks I'd experienced death and near death and it really shook me. But not just in an emotional way, I think it made me stronger and more resilient. Life was way too precious to worry about what people thought of my attempt to learn their language. And I knew that I was now able to face situations that I would never have been asked to deal with back home. But you know what? I did it. And the reality is, the ability to face and deal with every challenge came down to what I believed I could do. If you want to follow my journey as I move on to my next place, tune into my next episode next week called Friends for Life. If you've enjoyed my podcast and want to continue your confidence journey, well, I'd love to hear from you. And it's so easy to get in touch. You can join my Facebook group, which is Find Your Self Confidence, or message me directly at sue at sueblackhurst.com. Well, don't forget to subscribe. And until the next episode, remember, whenever you think you can't, think about what I've said. Tell yourself, actually, I can't.